Today's scripture is taken from Ecclesiastes 2, 18 through 26, and chapter 4, 4 through 8. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toils of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. This is God's word. Please be seated. So imagine yourself meeting someone for the first time. What's the first question? What's your name? Now think in your mind, what's the very next question? It could be 10 minutes later. It could be right away, depending on how you engage them. It's what's your name? And then it's the dreaded question, which is, so what do you do? I hate that question. Because if we've gone 10 minutes or so, uh, they usually, most people tend to think I'm normal, rather normal. And then what do you do? And I've tried creative ways, uh, and now I'm, I've given up. It's all vanity. And I've said, uh, I'm a pastor. And it could, depending on where I am, if I'm in a place where, well, depending on where I am, uh, people might apologize for things they've said uh, or done as soon as they find out I'm a pastor. And I used to try to say, don't worry about it, and now I just try to make them feel really bad about it. <laughs> so we all have these games that we play knowing that people are going to ask you what your name is and what you do. Now, some of us love to answer that question. Some of us love to answer that question because we are so fascinated with what we do. And uh, maybe more than that, <clears throat> we know that it holds some type of esteem in our culture or with the group of people that we're with. 
right? It's not always, it's not always hard for me to say I'm a pastor. It just depends on who I'm, who I'm with, right? Same, same for you guys. And the reason I think that we either love or hate this question, and, and very few of us are indifferent in the middle, is because it gets so close to our very identity. It's a very existential question, to use a philosophical word. And, and when I was thinking about this, I was reminded when I was in college, I was in a class, and it was called existentialism. It was a philosophy class. And one of the first things a professor said, I don't remember a lot that he said, but one of the first things that he said was, uh, existence precedes essence, and this is the heart of existentialism. That's a fancy way of saying uh, you have no purpose because everything's an accident, but how you pass the time uh, will determine whether or not you find uh, happiness. In other words, there is no purpose, so you better get busy making your own purpose. Existence precedes essence. In other words, you don't know what the essence of a human being is. You don't know what the purpose of your life is because you just exist. So now that you exist, you're given the work of trying to figure out what life should be. And I think that uh, the writer of the Ecclesiastes would, would hear that and say, that's just spin. That's just spin on meaninglessness. And the writer of the Ecclesiastes is committed to exploring how one would find a meaningful life under the sun if, in fact, existence does precede essence. In fact, if there is no built-in purpose in life, the Ecclesiastes, the writer, the teacher, the professor, the sage, whatever we want to call him, he's after that. He, he's trying to take that challenge that I was given in that class, and he's trying to live it out. And the reason it's relevant to us it's because all of us are actually trying to live that out. In our own way, whether we get the order right or not, all of us are trying to live a purpose. We're trying to live on purpose. We're trying to live for a purpose, Christian or not, religious or not. We're all longing for a meaningful life. And as we grow, the way we talk about it is different, and the things we seek to make a meaningful life change over time, but we're all longing for that. And so the teacher has invited us on a journey with him, a reflective journey. And he sought meaning first by pursuing understanding and wisdom. And that didn't work. And then he said, well, now I'm going to turn my heart to pleasure. I'm not going to deny myself anything my eyes see. And that didn't work. Now, the interesting thing about this is that he's actually rich enough to do that, which helps, right? Many of us, we like, okay, I'll, I'll give myself a year and just deny myself nothing. But we got to work. Right? So, so he's done that for us. He, he happens to have the resources where he can give himself fully to this task. And not all of us have the mental cognitive acuity or, or we're not sharp enough in order to, to really think that, it, that we can understand enough to make a meaningful life. But this man is filled with wisdom, as we've heard. So not only is he so smart and so rich that he can do these things, so far he's over two which has got to be, it's got to add insult to injury, right? It, it wasn't like you and I thinking, well, I just didn't have the extra million to spend last week. He did, and it still didn't work. So this week now, he's trying to get a base hit. He's 0 for 2. This is last at bat in this series of these two chapters. And he says, well, I'm just going to give myself to work. If wisdom and understanding don't work and pleasure doesn't work, maybe work will work. Maybe achievement will work. We need to hear this, I think. 
So I'm going to go in three points here. The first one, if you blink, it's going to be over. So just be ready. But that is simply, the first one is the pursuit of meaningful work. What he's trying to do is pursue work that gives meaning. And that's what I mean here by meaningful, literally meaningful, something that will give him meaning, not meaninglessness work, but meaningful work. So this is a big issue for us. It's a big issue in this country, uh, in this church. And uh, what's, what's happening, though, is work is getting harder. Right? If, you, if you think about 30 years ago, we thought work was going to get easier given technology, but it's not. It's actually changed, but it's worse. Uh, I, I think if I asked all of you, if I took a poll, if you could have one extra hour in a week, what's the first thing you would use it for? Most of you say sleep. I even heard it. That was my guess. You would say, I would sleep if I could get an extra hour. If you could just hit pause and all of us could just go do something right now, it would be sleep. It's brutalizing, right? Work is brutalizing because now it goes everywhere with us. We can't leave it. And yet we're doing more of it when we were promised we could do less of it. And what's important to know in verse 18, if you look, he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. So he's not just talking about your nine to five, or for most of us, your seven to six. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is that plus everything else. So, you know, we could add to this raising kids, mowing the yard, engaging in civic life, serving on boards and committees. It's all of your toil. It's exhausting so much. And so he's reflecting now on this toil, and he says, I'm going to give myself to the pursuit of meaningful work. Okay, so the teacher then quickly points out some problems with that, though. So that's going to be our second point, is that not only is he given himself to pursue meaning in work, but also he quickly finds out there are some problems, and this is where we're going to spend a lot of our time. So we're going to look at three ways that he seeks to make a meaningful life through his work, and we do too. And these are not going to be on the screen, so you can write these down if you want. The first one, he says in verse 18 through 21, verses 18 through 21, is this desire for contribution, right? My work can be meaningful if I can leave a legacy somehow. But quickly, he, he looks at it and he says, I hated all my toil. Why? Because I must leave it to the man who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So then it's worst case scenario for him in verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. So he takes this idea of legacy and he mocks it. He's like, well, I have a bit built big institutions and there are buildings and there's a kingdom. And then I give it away and I do not control my legacy. I wonder what it's like to be the president of the United States and give eight years of your life, for example, to some piece of legislation, and in a week or a year or two years, it's done, it's gone, right? To be uh, subject to the 24-7 news cycle, I bet they really get that 
it is an illusion to think we can control somehow our legacy. And so he, he comes out right away and says, uh, legacy doesn't work. He shows us that it's vanity because we're not in control of our legacy or ultimately our contribution. So why build your identity on something that is completely out of your control? That's what he's saying. Why would I do that? So contribution's out. I think about uh, the Vanderbilt family. So the, the original Vanderbilt who made their uh, initial piece of their fortune uh, his name was Cornelius. They called him Commodore. Will you guys start calling me Commodore? <laughs> I just like that. Uh, Commodore. Some, one of you will, and you'll think it's funny. So Commodore uh, started the family business by borrowing $100 from his mother in the mid to late 1800s. And by the time he died, he turned that $100 into $100 million. That's, that's in that day. That's not even translated for us. He turned it into $100 million which in case you're wondering what that would have been like uh, in the mid-1800s, time of his death was 1877, it was more money that, than that was held in the entire U.S. Treasury at the time. Pretty, pretty decent chunk of change. So then on his deathbed, he tells Billy, his son, this, any fool can make a fortune. It takes a man of brains to hold on to it. That's a blessing, right? Don't mess it up. I'm giving you all this money. Like, I was a fool, but I hope you're smart, Billy. So he gives him the money, and Billy doubles it. By the time of Billy's death, the family was estimated at being worth $200 million, just in one generation. Things started going downhill after that. Third generation, the money split into two sons. Billy decided rather than staking his, uh, putting his bet on one son, he, he split, split the difference and gave two sons. They split the fortune and it never, nothing good ever happened after that, basically. So, of course, we understand they gave a lot of money to Columbia University. They own lots of mansions now in what we call Central Park along Fifth Avenue. Those are all gone. Uh, the only thing that lasts now is Vanderbilt University in Nashville. But they're in the sixth generation. There is no money. There is nothing. There is no trust fund. Six generations. Really, it was five. Gone. More money than the, than the entire U.S. Treasury, gone. Five generations. So, what do we do with that? Well, we just know that even if we're one of those fortunate people that is remembered 100 years from now, it still won't matter. 200 years from now, it still won't matter. If the earth still exists in 6,000 years, okay, uh, a lot's going to happen between now and then. Your legacy is gone. It's nothing. And that's what he says. So don't put your stock in a legacy or a contribution. I heard of this uh, illustration in a sermon on Ecclesiastes I listened to, and he talked about a, a famous writer in England who on his tombstone said, all I did was plow water. Think about that image. You plow water, you pull out the tool, no one knows you were there. He said, that's all I did was plow water. So uh, he says, contribution isn't going to work. Uh, what about satisfaction? Verses 22 and 23. So he says, uh, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So it's not only that the fruit of all your labor can be given away to a lazy fool, but also that there's this issue of the weariness of work itself. 
right? Work is hard work. Remember, the teacher is searching for something solid enough that he can build his life on, where he can find meaning in. And, and if you think about work, he says immediately upon reflection that in work, it's something that's never finished. You're always being evaluated and things inevitably go wrong and are interrupted, right? Children that you pour into and sacrifice for continually, some of them will grow up and be rebellious. And you spent your whole life doing that. You spent 20 years and you're still pouring into them and you can't control it. Markets change, companies sell, technology eliminates jobs, patients get sick again, grant proposals fail, and you get, what do you do when you staked your identity on all of these things? Right? If you build your life on work to find meaning, you of all people will most experience it, its meaninglessness. If you're going to it to find your life, if you're trying to build your life on your accomplishments, on your work, because in a work-based life, you're constantly being evaluated, and therefore you will never find satisfaction in your work because it will never be complete, and it'll never be finished. And you'll always be striving, which is why you don't get any sleep, he says. I worked all day, came home, and now I can't even sleep. I'm exhausted because all I'm thinking about is I'm just not enough. So it's not that you won't find aspects of your work very satisfying. You will. It's that your work won't bring you ultimate satisfaction. And that's what he is trying to find is his ultimate satisfaction. So if your legacy or contribution isn't possible, satisfaction isn't ultimately possible, he tries one more thing. What about significance? What if I can find significance in my work? Look at chapter 4, 4 through 8. He says, And then I saw that all toil and all skill in work came from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. That's a whole sermon in and of itself, but I'm going to move on. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Do you see what he's saying? More isn't always better. We think, if I, just, if I just work really hard in my 30s and 40s, I can back off. Okay. But the writer says, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil. Are you getting in there two handfuls, two handfuls, two handfuls? And, and then he answers why that's a scary thing to, to think about. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? You see, if satisfaction is found in the individual's psychological rest, significance is the seek to find social recognition. That I can not just think I'm great, but I'm seen as great. That people will look at me and say, that man, that woman, he's great, she's great. And he asks the question, which is a great question to ask yourself, for whom am I toiling? This is a good question. Because all the talk with calling, like I want my calling, until you can answer that question, you have no idea what your calling is. Until you can answer, who, for whom am I working? Because to have a calling means that there must be a caller. Who's calling you? Who are you most afraid of when you think you're going to fail? Who pops in your mind? What conversations? What faces? What phrases? 
that's who you're working for. And you also have to understand that significance in, in, is not always money, depending on your field. Some, some very successful people in their field, they don't make a lot of money. I mean, in, in business, you tend to make a lot of money if you're successful. But that's not always true in other fields, maybe art or uh, academia, right? Even research scientists always working for the next grant. You think about Olympic athletes. There was, an, there was a training center in San Diego, Olympic training center, and I got to know some of the athletes who worked there, competed in the games, worked their whole life. Gold medals, silver medals, came back and had no idea how they were going to pay the bills. They were done. They weren't going to compete the next four years, so all their stipends went away. All of that glory, all of that significance. They don't even know how they're going to pay their bills now. They skipped college to do this, man. So they were significant, but now they didn't know what they were going to do. And you see, that kind, of, that kind of work alienates you. That's what he says. This poor man, he says, I saw he had nobody else with him, no, no, no son or brother, yet in the end, uh, his eyes were never satisfied with riches. So he pushed away all of the closest people to him. He had no time for friendships, no time for relationships, no time to pour into his children, presumably, that he had them or she had them, right? It's all about significance and achievement and do I look good. So who are you working for? Because if we work for an identity, we will most deeply experience the meaningless of life because in your work, you're always trying to prove you're somebody. You're always trying to arrive and it's exhausting. And that leads us to now this third beautiful thing, actually, in this text. Finally, finally, some hope. And that is, he talks about the provider of meaningful work. So he starts pursuing it. He points out these problems that, you know, I thought contribution and legacy would be it. That's not going to work. I thought satisfaction would happen. That didn't happen. I thought significance would, would be worth it. Nope. But then, in verses 24 and 26, something different happens in his journey. Let's read it. This is chapter 2, 24 through 26. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This is so striking, this difference, that some people think that this is him being cynical, that he's given up, that he's just exasperated and he just throws his hands up. He says, this also I saw is from the hand of God. This is the first time, actually, it's the second time God shows up. The first time he kind of blames everything on him, so it's not a great appearance in chapter one. But here, finally, he speaks of a good God, a God that he has believed in the whole time on this journey. He says, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? And the answer is obviously no one. So this is the first of, I think, five, what, what commentators call carpe diem verses. Seize the day. This is all there is. And so what do we do with them? Right, verse 24 uh, supports verse 25, right? So he says there's nothing better than one should eat and drink and find enjoyment, for apart from God, who can eat and drink and find enjoyment? The answer is obviously no one. Apart from God, no one can find these things. So Solomon, uh, Martin Luther, rather, 
Martin Luther, the reformer, uh, found in verse 24 what he said was the point of the entire book. And I'm going to read from Luther. He says, quote, Solomon wants to put us at peace and to give us a quiet mind in the everyday affairs of business of this life so that we live contentedly in the present without care and yearning about the future and are, as Paul says, without care and anxiety. So as I already mentioned, some see this verse and they see a hedonistic approach. They see eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die and this is all there is. But as one commentator said it, says it this way, no, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that's all there is. The teacher is saying this is what there is. You see, God has given the good things of this world to us, and they are their own reward. They're not a means to an end of significance, legacy, or satisfaction. They are to be enjoyed as good gifts of God. The problem is, is the human endeavor of work has been skewed and the project has been corrupted, and a virus has taken over, and your heart says, the gifts of God are not enough. I need to make something of myself. That's what's happening. That's what's happening in your work. So when we accept in a deep way that we are going to die, that knowledge can actually stop us from expecting too much from all of the good things that we pursue. Right? We learn to pursue them for what they are in themselves rather than what we need them to be to make us happy. I just need this. Not really. Because the problem is, once you get it, you'll need something else. And even that in and of itself isn't totally bad. Right? If you eat this afternoon, you're going to eat again. And that's not a bad thing. That's how you're made. But the problem is, is that if every meal you stuff your face as though this is the only thing that can make me happy, and you live a life on that, that's not going to end well. Same thing, the next day, the next project, the next opportunity, enjoy it. It's a gift of God that he's provided for you, but don't think you need it in order to make something of yourself, or as soon as you try to grab onto it, guess what will happen? It'll slip through your hands. Why? Because it's vapor. It's vanity. That's what he's saying. You try to get it. It's real. It's there. It's beautiful. You can enjoy it. But if you try to put that in a box and save it for later, right, that's the idea of gain. You're going to open that up later and nothing is going to be there because that's not what it's made for. So at the end of the teacher's quest in this section, he discovers that happiness comes from God's giving, not from his own striving. So pleasure and understanding and not even work can contribute permanent profit especially not in the face of death. But life, pleasure, understanding, and work are gifts of God. So, he says, when we see that they come from the hand of God, we can receive them as gifts and not try to use them for gain. We can receive them as gifts and not try to use them for gain. Where will you be tomorrow morning at this time? You might be with on a play date, you might be dropping kids off, you might be at work, you might be in a meeting. Where will you be? Will you receive it as gift or will you try to use it for gain? That's a, that's a good question he's giving us. And what's amazing to me is that he will never tie things in a bow for us because he moves on from this too. This is a peak. This is just a peak and this is what he does constantly. He says, Okay, so 
here is my under the sun pursuit, and I'm updating you how it's going, not well. And now finally in verse 24 and 26 in chapter 2, he juxtaposes, he puts these two things together, but he won't bring them together. He leaves them with a gap. He offers us in verse 24 through 26 uh, another vision of what's actually happening in his experience, a vision that is aware that there's more than just under the sun. There's actually something else, and he speaks directly to it for the first time. So what's happening is he's inviting us on this journey saying, you need to fill in the gap. You need to ask yourself these questions. You need to reflect deeply. Are you working as an expression of who you are in Christ, which I'll get to in a second, or are you working to try to build for yourself an identity to present to other people, whether it be through legacy, satisfaction, or significance? Which, by the way, those are all beautiful desires. Before I can tell you why, let's, let's ask one more question here at the end of our reflection. Because after all, we're going to spend most of our waking life toiling at work, aren't we? Especially when you realize it's not just your job, it's everything you do. Just like Ben mentioned, that's the type of toil he's talking about, weeding a garden, pruning plants. So here's the question. Who's the first worker in the Bible? Who's the first one who begins to toil? It's God. God is the first worker. God is the chief worker in creation in chapter one. Not Adam, not you. He gifted Adam with a task. And even Adam's identity didn't come from what he did. It came from his relation of who he was to God. But then he was gifted with this task and then a partner to do it with. But God is the first worker. So certainly his work is not in vain, is it? When we consider Genesis 1 and 2, we actually see that eating and drinking and enjoying one's work are an expression of the peace and prosperity God intended for his creation and humankind in particular. So in Ecclesiastes 24 and 26 here in chapter 2, it's neither a despairing response nor a precise answer to the book. It's rather, as I mentioned, an alternative vision of the world. And the amazing thing is that God in Jesus Christ, this gap, he actually fills the gap. Isn't it interesting that this worker, this teacher, worked his whole life and was terrified that he was going to have to give it to someone else. He toiled his whole life and amassed all of these things. And one of his greatest fears is that someone else would benefit from it. But he's not the only teacher. He's not the only wise one. He's not the only wealthy one. Who's he compared to? Jesus, of course. The great teacher who who left the throne room to come down and he gave his wealth away so that he could incarnate, be born on this earth and walk with us. And guess what? While the first teacher, Solomon, worked his whole life to amass these things and his worst nightmare would be that someone else would benefit from his toil. You have Jesus, the great teacher, who spends his whole life amassing this perfect record, pleasing the Father for the very purpose of us benefiting from his toil. 
You see, we, in our deepest longings for satisfaction and significance, and yes, even legacy, we will only find these things in receiving that gift. Because once we receive that gift of Jesus' life and death given to us, all of his toil counted to us, then we actually get to take place in the only thing that lasts, and that is the kingdom of God. In every part of our life, we get to participate in what God is doing, where God is redeeming, and we get to make that contribution in Christ. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, at the end of the chapter on the resurrection, Paul says, in Christ, brothers and sisters, your labor is not in vain. You see, it's because of Jesus' work, the work of, therefore, the believer then is not in vain because it has a future and it carries meaning and your labor is known, all of it, all of your toil, all of your heartache is known and he sees it and he smiles and he's with you. So we can stop striving and we can start resting because he labored and he toiled on our behalf. You're set free now to go and bless others through your labor and toil. Don't keep it for yourself like Solomon did and wanted to. But now, because we're secure, we get to give it. Our gifts, our desires, our longings, even our contribution. Let's pray together. Father, we are so tempted to believe that we have to make a purpose for ourselves. And that's exhausting work. And we, we ask that you would forgive us for that foolishness and that as we reflect, you would do two things. One, that you would give us great hope that our labor is not in vain. And two, you would give us deep rest from living as though our labor is the only thing that we would have to show. But we have righteousness to show because of you, Jesus, and we have hope to show the world. And so now I ask that we would be people with open hands and give of our time and energy and gifts and our treasure. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.